Where do wizards come from? In Middle-earth, they are sent by the gods to fight the forces of darkness. In Discworld, every eighth son of an eighth son is born a wizard. In The Once and Future King, the wizard Merlin was born at the end of time and is aging backwards into the past. And in today's play, Merlin is born fully grown and hairy as a baboon. His mother is a commoner, his father is the devil, and his author, depending on who you ask, is either a fat clown or William Shakespeare. Hello and welcome to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'm talking about The Birth of Merlin by William Rowley. This Jacobean play is one of doubtful origin and some would say dubious quality, but nevertheless of great interest on account of its contested authorship, its radical spin on Arthurian material, and, as some critics argue, its unusually progressive attitude towards sex. All of which will be discussed on today's episode. The Birth of Merlin, or The Child Hath Found Its Father, is not often performed. In 1989, this play was staged during an arts festival in Mould, North Wales, and subsequent to that I've been able to find reviews of two American university productions in the last decade, along with a review from 2013 of a performance at Shakespeare's Globe by the Red Not Dead Company, who specialise in performing forgotten or unknown plays from between 1558 and 1642. However, with uncanny, prophet-like timing, the Treehouse Shakespeare Company from Virginia have just staged what sounds like a really entertaining production of the play. I'll leave a link to Peter Kerwin's review. It serves not only as a good primer in the background of the play, uh, but also makes a case for why The Birth of Merlin deserves to be taken seriously and uh, staged more often. Assuming, like me, you weren't able to catch the performance and haven't seen the play before, there is also an audio version made by LibriVox, which I will link below for anyone interested. I very much enjoyed the LibriVox version. There's a couple of eccentric vocal performances, um, particularly Todd. Away, follow me no further. And another role that appears to be taken uh, by Andy from Twin Peaks. He that will climb so high must leave no joy beneath to move his eye. I'll also try to remember to link a uh, clip or two I found on YouTube of uh, the play being staged. Speaking of productions, according to N.W. Borcutt, The Birth of Merlin's first performance was at the Curtain Theatre in Shoreditch in 1622. The Curtain Theatre was where the Chamberlain's Men, Shakespeare's company, performed their new works from 1597 until 1599 when they relocated to the newly constructed Globe. So we're talking over 20 years after that, after their move, 1622, uh, the performance date given by Borcutt. However, the play doesn't appear in print until 1662, so another 40 years later, and by this point, over 30 years after the death of Rowley. So who was William Rowley? He was an actor-dramatist who worked for most of his career with the Prince Charles men, haven't said Prince Charles in a while, uh, later joining the King's men at the Globe. As an actor, he appears to have specialised in clown roles, in particular fat clowns, flesh out his resume, in two Thomas Middleton plays, The Inner Temple Mask and A Game at Chess, Rowley took the uh, juiciest roles, the fattest roles, playing respectively Fat Bishop and Plum Porridge. And the appearance of fat clown parts in his own plays indicate that he probably wrote them for himself as well. These include Bustopher in The Maid in the Mill and the clown in today's play, The Birth of Merlin. 
Although our clown is not fat by name like those other parts, uh, we know he's fat by nature from references in the text. Uh, Travelling with his pregnant sister Joan in tow, he refers to the two of them as a couple of Great Britons you may see by our bellies. As a writer, Rowley most commonly worked in collaboration and is credited with having a hand in a few of the era's well-known plays. These include The Witch, Witch of Edmonton, written with John Ford and Thomas Decker, and The Changeling, written with Thomas Middleton. If we are to believe the title page of The Birth of Merlin, it too was a joint effort, Rowley's collaborator being none other than William Shakespeare. This is a sensational, and as we will see, hotly contested claim. Uh, I have talked about spurious Shakespeare plays in the past. See, for instance, my episode on Edward III, which personally I'm more inclined to seeing uh, Shakespeare having a hand in. Um, But regardless of my opinion, I'm always interested in hearing the arguments for and against admitting a new play into the Shakespeare canon. In this case, the argument for is led by a scholar called Mark Dominic, who has written a book called Shakespeare and the Birth of Merlin, where he lays out his argument pretty comprehensively for uh, Shakespeare's involvement. We'll talk more uh, in detail about Dominic's theories later on, uh, as well as some of the arguments against. What also interests me in this play is its spin on Merlin and the other Arthurian elements of its plot. In case you haven't heard them, I've uh, previously done episodes on Geoffrey of Monmouth's depiction of Merlin and his prophecies. I've talked about Merlin in modern Arthurian literature like T.H. White's uh, Sword in the Stone and Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Modern literature relative to Geoffrey of Monmouth. Um, If you've read those books or listened to those episodes, there will be familiar moments in today's play. The Birth of Merlin retells the Galfridian version of Merlin's story, Galfridian um, indicating Geoffrey of Monmouth, with the story of Vortigern and his castle, the devilish fathering of Merlin and the prophesied arrival of Arthur. The play also has a wizarding rivalry and a magical contest, similar to those which we find in A Connecticut Yankee. In terms of what might be unfamiliar with this version of Merlin, chiefly we have the relationship between him and his mother, who is here called Joan Go-To-It. By contrast, in Geoffrey of Monmouth, Merlin's mother doesn't hang around for long and doesn't even get a name. Um, But here the character gets a good deal of attention, both before the birth of Merlin and afterwards. It's worth mentioning that the birth of the title doesn't actually happen until Act 3. So there's a preview of what's in store today, a Merlin origin story with a dash of Shakespeare controversy thrown in. Now, joining me to discuss The Birth of Merlin is Darren Freebury-Jones, a Shakespearean scholar and the author of the recently published Shakespeare's Tutor, The Influence of Thomas Kidd. Darren joined me on the last episode on Thomas Kidd's The Spanish Tragedy, which I recommend you listen to if you haven't already. And tomorrow I'll release an extended interview with Darren about his own work. That'll come out on Spotify and all the other audio platforms. To get us started, I asked Darren for a little background information on William Rowley. Is it is it Rowley or Rowley? <laughs> that is the hardest question you could possibly ask me. Um, <laughs> I used to say Rowley, and then I heard people mm. saying Rowley. Um, I, I always remember I, I went to London and visited a colleague uh, named Marcus Dahl, um, uh, who used to work at the Institute of English Studies. And I was talking about John Lyley. Um, I, I must have sounded quite American. And he was like, it's Lily, mate. You know, and I, felt, I felt mortified. You know, it's Lily. What, what, what are you going on about? But then I've heard people say John Lyley since. Yeah, I was going to say, I've always heard Lyley. Oh, gosh. Oh, oh this, is, this is a shock to me. I, I'm going to, I think maybe I've been going wrong for years. Um, but 
let's say Roly, because that's how I feel, I've heard it pronounced. But you know, think of your Ben and David Crystals. Uh, who knows how mm. those names were were pronounced um, uh, during the the early modern period? Uh, so William Roly, yes. <laughs> so what's his what's his background like? Where, where does he where does he fit in on that timescale we discussed in the in the previous episode on, on Thomas Kidd? Is he uh, roughly contemporary with Shakespeare, or a bit before or later? He's what well, he's a lot later than than Thomas Kidd, um, and he is, yeah, he, he's he's contemporary with Shakespeare, but he, but he's also later than Shakespeare. Um, he, he's very much a, a Jacobean dramatist. I mean, he was he was born he was born um, around fifteen eighty five, uh, and then he, okay. he died in sixteen twenty six. Um, mm. So, so that'll give you a, a good indicator that, you know, he he was born about five six years before Shakespeare started his writing career in London. So significantly younger than yeah, than and, Shakespeare. and then he died ten years after Shakespeare. Yeah, and he's another. I mean, we've, we we've already talked about Kidd and Shakespeare a fair fair bit. But he's another actor author, mm. uh, and he, he collaborated a lot with other playwrights. Do we know specifically who he had? collaborations with we've we've got we've got a good idea i mean he collaborated with almost anyone and everyone i, I think really? uh, and he's probably best known for uh writing works with more successful writers you know your thomas middletons your john webster's your thomas haywards uh your philip massengers your thomas deckers your john forge your john fletchers uh your george wilkinses so he was he was an incredibly um collaborative dramatist. The Birth of Merlin organises its plot along three planes. The future of Britain is the concern of the royal plot, involving King Aurelius and his brother Uta in their fight against the Saxons. Eventually on this royal plane we get to the story of another king, Vortigern, or Vortiger, as he is sometimes spelt. At the beginning of the play, the Britons, led by Aurelius, have just scored a terrific victory over their enemy, the Saxons, thanks in no small part to the intervention and assistance on the battlefield of a holy hermit called Anselm. Manifesting clear and glorious beams, Anselm has made it appear as if the Britons were marching in fire, terrifying the Saxons into submission. Beaten, the Saxons have now requested a truce, which Aurelius is keen to accept, undeterred by the warnings of advisers like Donabert. No man leaves physic when his sickness slakes, but doubles the receipts. The word of peace seems fair to bloodshot eyes, but being applied with such a medicine as blinds all the sight, argues desire of cure, but not of art. Beneath this royal plane is the romantic plot involving the marital status of two noble sisters, Modestia and Constantia, daughters of that same Donabert. The characters contained within this plane are lower than royalty and status, yet their uh, machinations nevertheless reflect and possibly influence the royal scheme from below. As Donabert moves between these two planes, we see how his attitudes in one are challenged in the next. We first see Donabert cheerfully marrying off his daughters, contrary to their wishes, but when we next see Donabert, it is he who is bewailing a marriage for being too hasty. King Aurelius has fallen for the Saxon ambassador Artesia, and uh, Donabert is not happy about it. Finally, you have the comic plot involving the clown and his pregnant sister Joan Gotuit, endeavouring in a series of bawdy and sometimes violent scenes to find the father of Joan's child. 
And again, this lowest ranking plane has, if anything, even more influence on the planes socially higher than it, hence the play's subtitle, The Child Hath Found Its Father. The fact that this subplot overwhelms the play has led to what David Nichol calls critical confusion about what the main plot is. The levels of the plot, or planes as I've described them, are not unusual in Elizabethan and Jacobean theatre. There is a similar organisational pattern in A Midsummer Night's Dream, for instance, with characters grouped by status, pursuing separate ends, but nevertheless crisscrossing uh, with one another thematically and structurally. Characters from different planes have parallel objectives. In his first appearance, Prince Uta is in the wood, seeking a woman who has bewitched his sight. He later discovers this woman is that same Saxon Artesia who has, by the time Uta sees her again, become betrothed to his brother, King Aurelius, causing a kind of uh, incestual love triangle typical of Arthurian romances. But before this, still in the wood, he is approached by Joan Gotuit and the clown. These two are trying to find the father of Joan's unborn child, who Joan describes as a gentleman she met during the last great hunting. Uta is appalled at the suggestion that it might have been him. He scornfully rejects them, and in fact he beats Joan, uh, an aspect of Jacobean stage humour which doesn't really translate to modern audiences, something we feel a bit queasy about, the spectacle of a woman being beaten on stage for kind of farcical laughs. Have to remember, Joan go to it would have, of course, been played by a uh, man, but or a boy, but that doesn't uh, fully excuse doing it. Um, but despite the beating and uh, Uta's scorn, the two of them, Joan and Uta, are in very similar predicaments. Both have become romantically entangled with a villain. Artesia and the Saxons eventually poison King Aurelius, and the father Joan is seeking is finally revealed to be the devil himself. And throughout the play, you feel these sorts of rhymes across planes of the plot, a kind of system of references gesturing at a wider scheme. Just to give you an example of how the play returns to a motif, Uta invokes Narcissus in that first appearance. He talks about this woman he's seeking like an echo, compares her to an echo in the wood. Uh, Joan hunts for her lover, looking a little bit like a kind of echo, but later in the play she's seen as more of a Narcissus. She describes how she fell into the devil's clutches by saying, My glass the altar was, my face the idol. Her confession doesn't only show how, how Joan has changed, how she is no longer vain, how she has grown spiritually, but by referring back to the Narcissus myth, the play indicates the centrality of Joan. This is her story, not Prince Uta's. The play presents and contrasts many different kinds of toppled or subverted hierarchies. We begin with the Britons defeating the Saxons quite by surprise, despite overwhelming odds, um, thanks to, as I said, uh, Anselm. The sisters, Constantia and Modestia, they devote their lives and bodies to spiritual betterment, thwarting the patriarchal wishes of their father and their fiancés. This subversion of theirs is contained within the wider upheaval taking place on the royal plane, the younger brother Uta taking Aurelius's place, the ultimate toppling of the Saxons, and the defeat of Vortigern paving the way for Arthur, the king that will unite the Britons. This theme is summed up in the a defining image from that Galfridian tale of Vortigern, falling stones and weak foundations. Interestingly, like in A Midsummer Night's Dream, the human hierarchies here are reflected by, and somewhat complicated, by the presentation of supernatural hierarchies alongside them. 
to mirror Theseus and Hippolyta, we have Oberon and Titania, characters who, like Merlin, are clearly more powerful than Uta or Aurelius or Vortigern or Theseus. Um, and so they unsettle our sense of the mortal order. We don't quite know where they fit. In this play, religio-pagan hierarchies, whatever you'd like to call them, are suggested by the magical characters. Anselm, the holy hermit, Proximus, the Saxon magician, Merlin, and of course the devil himself, who is another toppled king. Uh, Merlin doesn't just find his father, he defeats him. Megan Lynn Isaac has written that the play is frustrating because it seems to promise a very thoughtful organisation. Not only are there four clear plot lines within the play, um, Constantia and Modestia's romances, Joan's attempt to find a father for her child, Aurelius and Uta's entanglements with Artesia, and Vortican's struggle to hold the kingdom. Um, I'm just going to pause there for a second. I've been talking about planes. Don't, I don't, just don't want to confuse you with the threes and the fours. I've talked about these sort of socially structured planes of characters, uh, whereas Isaac talks about plot lines, and so she counts Vortigern's story as a new one, making it four. Whereas I'd say since Vortiger is a king, is sort of a Welsh king um, of Britain, so like Aurelius, um, even though he has an, his own plot, I would say he exists on that that plane. But anyway, Isaac goes on, there are also four distinct representations of female chastity, virginal Modestia and Constantia, pregnant Joan, married Artesia and adulterous Artesia. There are four models of kingship, Aurelius, Vortigern, Uta and Arthur, and four examples of magicians, Anselm the Hermit, Proximus, Merlin and the Devil. These four are involved in the dramatising of four escalating magical contests that eventually demonstrate not only Merlin's moral legitimacy, but his superior magical strength as well. In terms of finding a kind of uniting theme, we might also consider that the child Merlin finding his father the devil leads anachronistically to the infant country of Britain finding its own father, its future father, Arthur. Alison Findlay has written, With curious paternal pride, the devil pushes Merlin into his prophetic fate and the national limelight by sending him to aid Vortigern. So the devil kind of plays a part in pushing Merlin uh, towards his destiny and leading to the reign of Arthur. Now, it was conventional with these socially stratified plays to begin at the top and work down. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, we meet Theseus and Hippolyta first, who are joined by the noble lovers, and eventually we meet the mechanicals. So first the audience gets the, the wide view of the nation, then the court, and then the, the earthiest sort of sensual characters. Now, The Birth of Merlin immediately abandons this by beginning at its second level, with the nobles. We meet the two daughters of Donobert, Constantia and Modestia, who are being courted by Cador and Edwin, respectively. Donobert happily gets one daughter married off to Cador, that's Constantia and Cador, and then the Duke of Gloucester approaches him and asks if the other daughter might be free to marry his son, Edwin. Noble Edwin, says Don Donobert, let it suffice. What's mine in her speaks yours. For her consent, let your fair suit go on. She is a woman, sir, and will be one. Modestia, however, expresses doubts in a speech at the end of this first scene, saying, If what the sense calls pleasure were our ends, we might justly blame great nature's wisdom, who reared a building of so much art and beauty to entertain a guest so far uncertain. Mark Dominic has written, If one were to insist on finding a theme of the birth of Merlin, one might say that its controlling idea is the superiority of a commitment to spiritual chastity over sensual indulgence. However, the play achieves limited success in its advocacy of this idea. 
Just to offer an alternative, rather self-referential theme, the question of paternity chimes quite appealingly with the play's own vexed authorship question. As Megan Lynn Isaac has written, just as in the play, Merlin's mother spends most of the first act inquiring of every man she meets whether he might have fathered her child, Beaumont, Fletcher, Ford, Middleton and Decker, among others, have all been subjected to the literary equivalent of a blood test. So to dive into the authorship question, let's look at where the Shakespeare attribution theory begins and get Darren's take on it. Wanted to uh, obviously ask a little bit about the the inscription that's on the the 1662 quarto. Actually, is it a quarto? I can't remember. But the 1662 version, which uh, says uh, William Shakespeare and Rowley, is that um is that a bit of a, a stretch or um? Do you think there's a, there's a good reason to think Shakespeare might have had a hand in this? Mm. Uh, no. Um. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Just tr- tr- trying to sell a few copies, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, you've got that 1662 first edition of The Birth of Merlin. Um, and that was printed by Thomas Johnson for the booksellers, Francis Kirkman and Henry Marsh. Uh, and the title page, like you say, attributes the play to Shakespeare uh, and Rowley. So what, what that makes The Birth of Merlin is, is actually just one of two plays published in the 17th century, if, if I remember it correctly, as a Shakespeare collaboration. Uh, and the other one is The Two Noble Kinsmen, uh, which was printed in 1634, uh, and which we do recognise as, as a Shakespeare and, and Fletcher um, collaboration. But, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about Francis Kirkman, right? So this is a chap who, who appears in, in many roles in the English literary world of the, the second half of the 17th century. Uh, he appears as a, as a publisher, uh, a bookseller, a librarian, a, a, an author, a, a bibliographer, and his, his publisher output extended to most popular genres of the period. But, um, I, I've heard him described as uh, hovering on the borderline of roguery. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you an interesting play I, I worked on um, after I completed my PhD thesis at Cardiff University in 2016, I, I was asked to um, do some authorship attribution work for the Oxford Marston project. Uh, and one of the plays, um, that they were looking to see whether it contained the, the hand of John Marston was, was a play called Less Dominion. Um, and and I, I think I, I established that uh, the play probably doesn't contain Marston's hand. Uh, and it was uh, a collaboration between Thomas Decker, uh, William Hofton and, and John Day. But what's interesting about Less Dominion is that it was attributed uh, on its title page in 1657 to Christopher Marlowe. Um, which mm. you know, read the play. That that's uh, that's absurd. Uh, and, and who came up with that attribution? Well, it was Francis Kirkman. Um, so I, I think, as as you say, I think the later publishers recognised the marketing potential of um, Shakespeare's name, uh, and and that 1662 uh, quarto attribution of the Birth of Merlin to Shakespeare is demonstrably erroneous because we know that it was licensed as a new play in 1622. Now, you know, there aren't many things I would put past Shakespeare Ash, but but writing beyond the grave uh, is is probably 
uh, one of them. There, there has been a scholar named Mark Dominic who, who made a case in 1991 uh, in a book called William Shakespeare uh, and the Birth of Merlin. Um, I guess not the most inventive title there. Um, <laughs> um, you know, but it, it's a great book. I've got a copy uh, at my right elbow right now, actually. Um, mm. it's, it's a great book. And, and I've got to be honest, it's probably one of the studies that, um, that got me interested in early modern authorship um, studies. Mm. So, so I think it's a, it's a great book. But, but truth be told, I think Mark Dominic merely succeeds in, in showing that Shakespeare and Rowley shared some common words and, and images during the periods. Um, there's nothing in the birth of Merlin uh, that's indicative of, of, of Shakespeare's hand. Certainly Shakespeare's influence, as, as we see in so many uh, Jacobean texts. Um, there's a scene, which my memory is a little bit hazy. I don't know if you remember where they start talking about walking like a crab or something. And it really closely resembles that um, that moment in Hamlet. What's the line? You would be as young as I, if like a crab, you could walk backwards. Uh, so so you, you, you see the influence of Shakespeare, but in terms of verse style and, and, and language and, and dramaturgy, it's, it's clearly not Shakespearean. No, it's, it feels a lot more ceremonial. It's, mm. it's sort of chunks of sort of prose and then verse, mm. almost almost like it's got a bit of a strange kind of tableau effect. You know, you don't really, in a lot of scenes, you don't really build up any um, any rhythm, mm. anything like what you were describing on our episode in Kid and those, you know, rapid fire lines. It's, it's, oh no, yeah. it's, it's not, it's not got the, the kind of complex structure of your, uh, your Kidian tragedy. Um, you, you, can, you can tell Roly, Roly is really enjoying himself whenever the the comic scenes are, are taking place uh, and and as, as a reader I've, I've got to say I, I i enjoy the um the comic scenes more than those involving royalty or, or aristocratic uh, characters as i mentioned in my introduction the most comprehensive case for shakespeare's involvement in the birth of merlin is made in mark dominic's book um so i wanted to have a quick look at his arguments and then take in some alternative theories as well Dominic dates the composition of the play to around 1613 to 1615, uh, which is what we'd expect, given that the first performance date is 1622. Uh, claiming an earlier composition date has the advantage of making sure Shakespeare was actually alive to write it. So um, 16 to 13 to 15, we'd be looking at very, very late Shakespeare before he was actually the late Shakespeare. Uh, Dominic suggests the play is four parts Shakespeare to five or six parts Rowley. Um, so Rowley's still the lead author, according to Dominic's theory. Uh, he details many stylistic commonalities with Shakespeare's later verse, which has more run-on lines, less rhyme, and fewer feminine endings. Dominic gives an extensive list of uh, common vocabulary between the birth of Merlin and Shakespeare. I won't start reeling them off. But um, if you're familiar with Shakespeare, there are some words that will, will probably catch your eye. The clown calls Merlin a moon calf at one point, which is uh, something Caliban is called in The Tempest. Dominic actually focuses on The Tempest quite a bit. He compares Merlin to Prospero, and he cites the birth of Merlin's inclusion of a mask and reliance on special effects to The Tempest. I really enjoyed Mark Dominic's book um, without being totally convinced by his argument, to be honest. I don't think evidence of Shakespeare's language is necessarily uh, evidence of Shakespeare. Um, as Dewar M. Robb has said, the, the text 
has a difficult history of revision, abridgment, and augmentation, like a lot of these early modern plays. Um, the idea that Shakespearean influences might have entered the text at some point or other, I don't think is necessarily enough to suggest Shakespeare was actually directly involved. And a lot of the time, you get the feeling that the argument boils down to a question of quality. Dominic takes the position that the birth of Merlin is simply too good to be Rowley. The language is more complex than Rowley is elsewhere, and characters like Modestia are far too intelligent to have sprung from the pen of Rowley. And it's definitely true that other critics have a similarly low opinion of Rowley. Um, Samuel Schoenbaum has described Rowley's subplot in The Changeling, which he wrote with Thomas Middleton, as the play's worst blemish, stupid and tedious, offensive to the modern reader. So that gives you a, a sense of what Rowley is thought of in some quarters. On the other hand, claiming it's too good to be Rowley has attracted retorts of, well, it's still too bad to be Shakespeare. Um, O.J. Campbell and E.G. Quinn have written There is nothing in the play to support the ascription to Shakespeare And C.F. Tucker Brooke has said There is not a single poetic passage in The Birth of Merlin Which will justify for an instant the hypothesis of Shakespeare's authorship The disjointed nature of the plot, moreover And the foolish and immature morality of the Modestia scenes And the repeated appeals to the cheap makeshifts of sorcery and divination Stamp it as distinctively un-Shakespearean as referenced earlier, there have been other theories, other authors suggested as potential collaborators with Rowley. The play shares plot points with a play by Beaumont and Fletcher called Cupid's Revenge, which some people have suggested may indicate Beaumont and Fletcher's involvement. Other people have pointed to Rowley's former collaborator Middleton, who he'd obviously worked with before, and uh, cited similarities to uh, Middleton works like the Mayor of Queenborough. I should speak a little bit more actually about Rowley as, um, as an actor playwright. So he, he Rowley first enters the, the historical record in uh, 1607 uh, with the publication of a, a play called The Travels of the Three English Brothers, uh, which was mm. with John Day, uh, George Wilkins and, and Philip Massinger. And what's quite notable is Rowley's always thought of as a, a, a comic playwright, um, but it was actually John Day, not, not Rowley, who, who supplied the, the comic material uh, for that play. So, so I think Rowley exhibits a, a flair for darker material too, I reckon. You know, he, he could deal with, with tragedy as well as comedy. And what we know about Rowley is that he was, he was um, quite large. <laughs> And so this this led to appearances as as clownish figures like Plum Porridge uh, in, in the inner uh, Temple Mask and uh, the Fat Bishop uh, in a game at chess, uh, which were both written by by Thomas Middleton. And in, in his own plays, you actually see uh, Rowley often writing large, oversized comic characters uh, for his for his uh, performance. Um, it's the kind of comedy that uh, I imagine wouldn't go down too well in the 21st century, but, but there you go. Um, and what's, what's quite interesting about Rowley is that he didn't uh, restrict his activities as a, as a playwright to what company he was acting with. So we know that in 1609, he, he joined a company called the Duke of York's Men, uh, which later became the Prince Charles Men. And from 1623 to 1625, I think, he, he's a member of Kingsmen, uh, the, the Kingsmen, uh, formerly Shakespeare's company, of course. And so Rowley, 
as an actor, uh, 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 as an actor playwright, um, he would have performed at various playhouses, including the Curtain, uh, the Hope, and the Red Bull. So he's he's actually mm. an incredibly important figure uh, in in terms of theatre history, um, and I, yeah, I, I I think further study of, of Rowley could could unlock quite a few things in, in terms of. Um, Jacobean drama and, and theatre history, but, mm. but uh, like I said, I, he he's mainly known as a comic playwright uh, who who often played clowns. But his his reputation mm. rests largely on tragedies, tragic comedies, and domestic domestic tragedies. Um, plays like The Changeling and, and A Fair Quarrel, which he wrote with Thomas Middleton, uh, and mm. The Witch of uh, Edmonton with with Thomas Decker uh, and John Ford. And, and what we see in Rowley's plays is a, a passion for uh, puns on place names uh, and, and flowers. Uh, Rowley likes to reference Wales and, and Welshmen, uh, which I, I find quite pleasing. Uh, he, he frequently puns on, on classical references and, and you know, he's got a real penchant for sesquipedalian words. Uh, that said, he's actually proved to be a really elusive dramatist when you think of style. Um, mm. When you think of the kind of textual analysis that the scholars tend to employ in order to to detect common authorship, so he wasn't as self-repetitive um, as dramatists like your, your Thomas Decker's or or your John Ford's. Uh, he, he didn't repeat um, phrases as frequently as, as other playwrights, um, and, and you know mm. we can see that with like large electronic databases, with, which which have really failed, I think, to, to, to highlight uh, individualizing um, phrases when it comes to, to Rowley. Uh, one scholar says that Rowley had no usual vein. He was eclectic, opportunistic, uh, opportunist, and even to the last, somewhat imitative. Uh, and even within one play, his style is liable to vary considerably, which kind of tallies with what you were saying about the birth of Merlin in, in terms of it doesn't necessarily feel uh, homogenous. Um, but I, I think a modern edition of Rowley's works is, is badly needed, um, you know, especially given Rowley's uh, significant place as, as, as this deeply collaborative uh, dramatist. Um, almost as collaborative as, as a writer like uh, uh, Thomas Decker, for instance. But but the, the tricky thing with the new edition of, of Rowley's um, works is that it, it's trick. It's very problematic trying to determine what he actually uh, wrote. I think there's around 16 surviving Rowley plays, and we know of about 19 uh, that were attributed to him. So. Uh, he's usually seen as a sole author of uh, A Shoemaker and a Gentleman, uh, A New Wonder, All's Lost by Lust. Um, and I, I'd be inclined to give The Birth of Merlin to him as sole author as well. Um, and we know of, of uh, a few lost Rowley plays, uh, like Hyman's Holidays, uh, A Knave in Prince, uh, and A Fool Without Book. And there were several plays attributed to, to Rowley, that were apparently lost when um, Betsy Baker, uh, who was the English uh, antiquary John Warburton's cook, uh, uh, apparently an illiterate cook, um, she she supposedly burned a large number of priceless plays, uh, which she used to mm. um, 
uh, to line pie bottoms. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like uh, sounds like the Blackadder sketch. Yeah, yes. With, uh, Johnson's Dictionary. Yes, yes, very much so. It's, um, David McInnes has written on this uh, recently. And he, he's produced a fantastic book called um, Shakespeare and, and Lost Plays. Uh, and I, I think he's, you know, he, he kind of investigates the... Um, the, the uh, verity of John Warburton's claims there. Um, but I just mm. find it such a fascinating anecdote. You know, you've got this huge list with some plays by Shakespeare apparently on it as well, uh, of these, these editions and, and manuscripts and whatnot that Warburton supposedly owned. And then his illiterate <laughs> just chucked them in the oven. <laughs> the bottom of a pie. So to line the bottoms of pies, yeah. <laughs> I actually found it quite difficult to get myself a, a legible copy of the Birth of Merlin. It's 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 quite it's quite hard to. Uh... I've used the Mark Dominic um, book, so so as an appendix, he's he's got the the text. What one did you find uh, at the end? It looks like a photocopy, to be honest. Um, I'm not quite sure what the publication is. It's in the other room, but no, it's 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 definitely a, fo- uh, a like a photocopy. And slightly missing bits here and there. You have to kind of draw in the rest. It's such a fun play as well. It's, it's such a fun play that I'd I'd like to see um, see uh, more editions of it, really, or or see it incorporated into um, you know volumes con- containing multiple plays. I, I think it's you know it's it's a crazy play, but it, it's uh, it's a great laugh. Another claim made by the title page is that the play hath been several times acted with great applause, and there are those who find that as hard to believe as the attribution to Shakespeare. Arthur Simons, for instance, calling the play crude and lumpish. It is stilted and monotonous in the verse, gross and tame in the prose. It would be pleasant to think that Rowley had no more to do with it than Shakespeare. The great defender of the play, Mark Dominic, as you might expect, disagrees. Although he does say that I confess my estimation of the literary worth of Merlin is higher than anyone else's that I know of. Nevertheless, he says, The Birth of Merlin is rather a good play, judging it against the general run of Jacobean drama. It is funny, colourful, fast-paced, entertaining, and at its best, even charming, moving and exhilarating. A rewarding work that deserves more attention than it has received. I would agree with Dominic on all of that, and I direct your attention again to uh, Peter Kerwin's review of this recent production, which, um, if the review is anything to go by, has proved Dominic right on all of those counts. Um, The bits I liked least are the points where the script sort of smacks wearily of pantomime humour, when Joan and the clown are trying to figure out if Uta is the father of her unborn child, Uta says, Know thee, as I do thunder hell and mischief, witch, scullion, hag... And the clown remarks, I see he will marry her. He speaks so like a husband. That sort of patter has uh, changed dismayingly little over the centuries. But for each of those moments, there's a there's a line I genuinely liked. Um, Merlin at one point says his father keeps a hothouse in the low countries. Sometimes when the characters speak verse, the abrupt switches to rhyming couplets can seem a little stiff and formal. But I think in this kind of story where you've got a collision of history or if not quite history national myth colliding with freewheeling modernity and bawdiness that kind of uncanny effect as you switch between the two sort of makes sense it reminds you that the likes of joan and the clown are actually intruders they're kind of trespassing on this uh, canonical literature just like twain's connecticut yankee is trespassing in king arthur's court 
The play has some really memorable flourishes too. One of my favourite scenes was when Artesia, now married to Aurelius, euphemistically communicates with Uta by sending him an artificial crab, like a jeweled crab, um, a creature that goes backwards, that uses its legs and eyes two separate ways, says Uta, hopefully. And Artesia's gentlewoman encourages this reading of his, saying, Just like the sea crab, which on the muscle preys whilst he builds at a stone. And the fact that Artesia is actually deceiving both Aurelius and Uta makes the image even more suitable. She has one brother in her claws already and is eyeing up the next. I quoted from a speech of Modestia's earlier where she says, uh, she talks about great nature's wisdom who reared a building of so much art and beauty to entertain a guest so far uncertain, so imperfect if only speech distinguish us from beasts who know no inequality of birth or place but still to fly from goodness. Oh, how base were life at such a rate. Later, Artesia uses a, a similar kind of turn of imagery. She says, pleasure is like a building. The more high, the narrower still it grows. Cedars do die soonest at top. Artesia's building imagery is particularly well suited in this play of uh, toppling towers. It can't escape our notice that on his first appearance, Merlin, freshly born, fully grown, fully bearded, is reading a book to sound the depth of arts, of learning, wisdom, knowledge, he says. In other words, he is learning the lessons referred to by Modestia and Artesia and learning them early. The play is also very visually ambitious. There are characters squashed by stones. There's the appearances of dragons, of spirits. The play has a mask and music. Uh, in the scene preceding the arrival of Merlin, the devil summons the fates amidst thunder and lightning, saying, Mix light and darkness, earth and heaven dissolve. Be of one piece again and turn to chaos. Break all your works, you powers, and spoil the world. There was quite a bit of the verse that I liked, and... I think you can see why some people have got a whiff of Shakespeare um, from a bit like this from Modestia again. This world is but a mask, catching weak eyes with what is not ourselves but our disguise, a vizard that falls off the dance being done and leaves death's glass for all to look upon. Our best happiness here lasts but a night, whose burning tapers make false wear seem right. Who knows not this and will not now provide some better shift before his shame be spied, and knowing this vain world at last shall leave him, shake off these robes that help but to deceive him. This is a this is a completely unfair question, but but pure pure speculation. Uh, some of the uh, stage directions in the play are are absolutely wild. There's um there's a a, a falling stone at uh, Vortigern's tower uh, crushes Proximus, the Saxon um, uh, mystic, uh, just. Suddenly, a falling stone falls and, and, and crushes him. Uh, and then we have the, the red and white dragon um, fighting it out. And I love it when you're reading a play and there's some, sometimes a, a stage direction that's as nonchalant as um, <laughs> dragons arise and fight. And you think, you can't just put that. <laughs> Where's the sorry you're going to have to pay for that? Or, you know... Um, this is how we'll do it, the kind of thing. So do we have any idea how, how things as, as, as wacky as that were pulled off or represented? You know, you know what, I'm, I'm not sure personally. Um, you might have some listeners who, who are expert in that kind of thing and are just like, no, they, they, they did it that way. Um, but I, I mean, the Revenger's tragedy, uh, Thomas Middleton's Revenger's tragedy, like Merlin, has a blazing comet uh, at the end of the play, if I remember correctly. Um, so... It, it seems that the 
the King's Men Company, at least, uh, had some kind of special effect uh, along those lines at their disposal. Uh, as for as for dragons, um, I imagine they'd be be represented by uh, elaborate costume. You know, the, the kind of um, dazzling, spectacular uh, costumes you see in in masks. Uh, written by the likes of mm. Ben Johnson, you know, may, maybe fireworks would employ that kind of thing. Um, yeah. As as for the the falling stone, I I was yeah I because I, I reread the play recently, um, uh, and I just looked at that moment and thought, you know, how do you time that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how how do you how do you get that right? You know, um, every afternoon um, putting on this play, uh, I. Maybe that moment relied on aural awareness uh, on, on the audience behalf. So, you know, if someone says, oh, a rock just fell on your head and the actor drops to the floor. Um, you know, you, that's on your imaginary forces working. Um, I, I, a bit like the Wicked Witch, <laughs> just little feet sticking out on stage. <laughs> <laughs> I've, got, I've got this image of like this... Um, Papier mache like boulder or, or, or something I don't know. But... Me too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but 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 maybe that's in the language there. That that's that's the audience using their their imagination. And I think early modern theatre was was very much both an aural and an ocular experience. And, and so you know we get yeah. we get spectacular. This is something I, I'm working on a, a book on Robert Greene at the moment. Um, and mm. one of the things. That have struck me about his plays is that he has some spectacular um, uh, moments of staging and, and stagecraft and dumb shows as well, where, where, where you get that that kind of thing. You're like, wow, how did they stage that? You know, Venus mm. appears and then she suddenly flies up into the heavens or, or whatever. And I, I think with with later plays, particularly in, in the Jacobean period, I, I think you uh, you get a sense of advances in stage technology. Um, and I think you you definitely get a, a movement towards spectacle uh, and visual theatre uh, in that mm. uh, period in particular. And I, you can see that in the pop popularity of pageants and masks. Um, think think of Ben Johnson's The Mask of Blackness, uh, which I think was performed. I think it was performed sixteen oh five. That that was a play. You, you were you were talking about budget constraints there, Ash. Um, Mask of Blackness apparently cost £3,000, which is the equivalent of £300,000 today. So that's about $370,000. And, you know, you have a look at the dramatist persona or, or whatnot of, of that uh, mask. Uh, well, well, it featured six blue-haired merman-like tritons, uh, gods mounted on giant seahorses, and six large sea monsters with torchbearers on their backs. So, you know, put, put that into context. Uh, a white and red dragon don't seem all that impressive. <laughs> no, no. A couple of bob. A <laughs> couple of bob, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we, yeah, we've just got a couple lying around, actually. Uh, they, they need the work. <laughs> As Anita Obermeyer writes, since Rowley's biography is sketchy, it is difficult to ascertain what he might have read. Most scholars agree he was probably not university educated, but in terms of where he got his Arthurian sources from, uh, as well as Geoffrey of Monmouth, he may well have read the Mort d'Arthur printed by Winkin de Word. 
Rowley seems to have a bit of a penchant for uh, clown-devil interactions. They occur in the two plays he's involved with before The Birth of Merlin, and if he took the part of the clown simplicity in The World Tossed at Tennis, then The Birth of Merlin won't have been the first time he was squaring off, or perhaps rounding off, with Satan on stage. In terms of what else is particular to Rowley, scholars have been struck by the lack of any apparent source for the characters of Constantia and Modestia, as well as the new flourish in Merlin's family tree. He's not just the son of the devil now, he's also the nephew of a clown, which makes this Merlin, in the eyes of Stephen Knight, not only a patriotic historic seer, but also a folkloric comic trickster. One thing I'm, I'm curious about, I, I've, I've recently done some episodes on, on Shakespeare and I'm slightly going, going back and forth between Shakespeare and Arthurian literature. Do you find it surprising that Shakespeare didn't uh, use more Arthurian material himself. You know, there's there's a scant references here and there, like in in Henry the Fourth, where we get a we get a little a sudden dash of Merlin pro- Merlin's prophecies from I think it's Glendower. Oh yeah. Um, but not much, not much else. Um, it almost feels like he he, he should have written his Arthurian play. Mm. Almost feels like there's a a blank in the map there. Mm, I'd forgotten about that Glendower moment, to be honest. Um. You've got Henry V as well, where you've got Mistress Quickly mourning the death of Falstaff, and she's sure that he's in Arthur's bosom. Um, mm. And then, then, of course, in King Lear, you've got that bizarre moment in which the, the full character gives a prophecy of a prophecy, um, this prophecy Merlin shall make, uh, for I live before his time. But great question, not a question I've really thought about before, but, but I guess... I guess it is a little bit odd um, that that not only have you got scant reference, um, that, but Shakespeare didn't turn his hand to uh, to, to an Arthurian um, uh, dramatic work because it it was popular uh, in terms mm. of dramatization. So the the theatre impresario Philip Henslow uh, lists around five plays related to to King Arthur uh, that were performed during the fifteen nineties. Why didn't Shakespeare turn his hand to it? Maybe it just didn't interest him. Is is the really boring, boring answer? Um, I, I I don't know. Maybe, maybe the religious turmoil of the time made made any Arthurian themes impolitic to to use. Because as I understand it, the legend of Arthur became very entwined with. Uh, with Catholic dogma, and of course, religious language was very volatile at the time. But then, you know, that doesn't account for for all these other um, Arthurian plays that, that we see. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's it's a mystery. I, I can't give a definitive answer, but it's um, it's a fascinating mystery. I think it wasn't just the Tudors that invoked Arthurian material to reinforce and mythologize their own reigns. Anita Obermeyer writes, I propose that Rowley writes this specific play so that Merlin's still valuable prophecies can valorise his patron, Prince Charles Stuart, as a new Arthur figure. James I's well-known interest in magic, frequently spoken about in relation to Macbeth, may also have influenced the birth of Merlin. Megan Lynn Isaac has described the way Rowley legitimises magic in the play, carefully illustrating the difference between good magic and bad, white and black. By imprisoning the devil in a rock, Isaac writes, Merlin's allegiance moves from his father to the father, making Merlin a fit advisor for a Christian king. 
thereby reassuring his audience that magical powers are an appropriate tool for rulers to call upon. We might see this shifting of allegiance as putting Merlin on the top of that magical hierarchy I, I mentioned earlier. He triumphs over the devil and the pagan wizard Proximus, putting the first in a stone and squashing the second with another stone. Uh, Anselm is a slightly more interesting case, the holy hermit whose advice is generally sound. When Aurelius makes his feelings for Artesia clear, Anselm says he hugged his ruin and his country's woe. But although he appears to be a benevolent, prescient holy man, Megan Lynn Isaac has noticed that Toclio's request that Anselm might help him find a lost man puts Anselm firmly in the category of witch. Finding lost property or people, especially when such recoveries would prove financially rewarding, was one of the most common functions of English witches. And since we're thinking about royal influences, I think they, they might explain other elements in the play. Uh, since Joan Gotuit has transgressed by sleeping with the devil, we might expect her to be discarded by the play, as Merlin's mother vanishes from Monmouth when she has provided the narrative of her son's infernal conception. Instead, Rowley shows Joan rejecting the devil and being protected and honoured by her son afterwards. Her sin has not made her a write-off. Speculating about the reason behind this, Isaac suggests another royal answer, reminding us that Rowley was living in an age when insisting on too close an examination of parentage or too narrow a definition of chastity could be dangerous. Queen Elizabeth was herself an illegitimate child by some interpretations, and aspersions were also frequently cast on the legitimacy of James I. I, one of the things I find really, really interesting about the, this play is uh, its spin on Merlin. I mean, you, you have you have certain sort of canonical um, uh, Merlin events: the Tower at Vortigern, uh, Son of the Devil, uh, or a Devil. But he's also the nephew of a of a clown. Um, the the clown that I, I, is it. Is it? I read somewhere that it was suggested that Rowley might have played this clown, but when you were describing him earlier as the sort of, you know, a larger one, I I can't remember. Are there references to him being a bit large in this? I, I think there are. Um, there are. Okay. I, I'm inclined to think not as many as I thought I remembered uh, when I when I reread mm. the play. But you've got his sister Joan Go to it, haven't you? Um, yes. You know, best thing <laughs> character in drama ever. Um, and I, and I th I'm, I'm sure I remember there's some kind of joke about how his belly resembles hers because, of course, she's she's pregnant after oh, after yes. bumping into a gentleman in the woods uh, who turns yeah. out to be a devil with with hooves and a, and a horrid head. <laughs> I thought that was really interesting because it's a very different sort of clown. I mean, maybe it's just the sort of madness of this play, but it feels like there's characters from all kinds of different plays. There's mm. uh, uh, from a history play one minute. And then from almost like a morality play, the next in the you know, clown called clown or or or, or whatever. And then Joan go to it. It mm. seems more way a completely different kind of yeah burlesque comedy. Mm. Um, but it actually creates a really really interesting effect. I was going to ask you: Had clowning changed much since the days of say Kemp and um, Shakespeare's early? collaborations with clowns that's a great question um just think of the structure of the play it's three-tiered isn't it so you've got your aristocratic figures and, the, and their concerns mm. which are you know concerned with your kind of state affairs sort of thing um no your royal your royal character sorry um 
on the one stage. So, so they're, they're operating very much um, in, in a, I want to say a global sense. Um, you know, they're, they're dealing with the big issues. Uh, and then you've got your, your aristocratic figures who, who are attending to their individual needs. And then you've got the sensual needs of the lower class characters. Uh, so, so it's like this kind of um, crazy, delicious um, class cake uh, that, that Rody's um, uh, de delivering to us there. Um, but, but in terms of thinking about the evolution of clownish roles, um, well, I, I think it'd be best for me to, to sort of think about Shakespeare's company in, in the first instance. You, you mentioned Kemp. Okay, well, let's think about Will Kemp's characters. So, so most of Shakespeare's fools up to 1599 are rustic zanies, aren't they? Um, you've got figures like Bottom and, uh, uh, and Dogbury, um, who, who we believe were, were played by Will Kemp. Uh, and then Kemp, of course, mysteriously uh, leaves the company uh, in 1599 and uh, Morris dances the 125 miles from London to Norwich, uh, as you do. Um, what an exit. <laughs> what an exit. That's, uh, <laughs> we might call it a, a prolonged exit, yeah. Um, yeah. And then you've got the introduction of Touchstone uh, in As You Like It. And then in Shakespeare's um, dramatic oeuvre, we, we, we've got uh, a series of courtly fall characters, haven't we? Um, they're, they're quite different to those played by Kemp, uh, that they tend mm. to be uh, philis uh, philosophical, um, fiercely satirical. They, they've got a habit of railing a, a, against the world. Uh, I mentioned Touchstone and As You Like It. You've got uh, Feste in Twelfth Night. You've also got the, the Porter uh, in, in Macbeth, uh, Thesites in, in Troilus and Cressida. And these, these characters were likely played by uh, Robert Armin, uh, who, who seems to have become the, the principal clown. Um, in, in Shakespeare's company, um, the Lord Chamberlain's men, and uh, uh, known as the, the, the King's men from 1603 onwards. And I don't think we can overstate the contributions that Robert Armin made to the development of Shakespeare's uh, drama, and indeed drama as a whole in the context of Shakespeare's company, really. You've got a whole new full role uh, was added to the, the King's men adaptation of John Marston's The Malcontent, uh, in 1604, mm. which was revised by John Webster, in order to sharpen that play satire. You know, this was something that Armin in particular was, was known for, was, was playing your, your satirical, uh, foolish character. Um, so, you know, Shakespeare wasn't the only dramatist taking, uh, taking advantage of Armin's uh, distinct comic uh, talents. Um, as for, for Rowley's clown specifically, uh, Etta Ornott, uh, a scholar named Etta Ornott, has uh, observed that all of Rowley's independent plays have similar clowns, uh, characters notable for their wordplay uh, and buffoonery, and some of, the, uh, some of them are rustic figures marked by simplicity, native humour, and earthy common sense, which kind of reminds me of Kemp's clowns. Um, more than your, your Robert Armin's uh, clownish figures. Um, David Nicholl, who's done in, in incredible work um, on, on Rowley, uh, probably the most comprehensive um, and exhaustive work that, that's been conducted on Rowley, really. He, he's shown that um, Rowley exploited 
his own stage persona, you know, whether whether in the capacity of um, capacity as actor or, or, or author, and that Rowley created striking continuities uh, between his roles. So, for instance, in in almost all of his plays, Rowley uses a persona based on guileless plain speaking, uh, and and he repeatedly structures his his clown subplots in such a way that the final scene contrasts the, the clown positively uh, with another character. I'm, I'm quoting David Nichol there. Um, mm. And he showed that this uh, plot motif of the guileless natural clown uh, being ultimately vindicated by a contrast with, with another character uh, is seen in a number of his self-written roles. So, so I guess we, we see something of an evolution in the vindication, I guess, of, of clownish figures as, as commentators. Um, now, now that, that emphasis on, on clowns as almost omniscient, choric-like commentators, uh, Festes is the first figure that springs to mind. Um, I guess that means less room for ad-libbing, you know? Um, mm. So, you know, some, some scholars have suggested that uh, Hamlet's advice to the, to the uh, travelling players let those that play your clowns speak no more than is set down for them uh, is a reference to Kemp's habit of going off script. Um, but I, I guess the points, I, I guess the point I'm making actually is that clowns come in all shapes and sizes, uh, even though Rowley's always seem to have been large. Um, and, the, and the kind of comic humor of your, your Richard Tarleton's and, and your William Kemp's, your more natural, um, your simpleton falls, you know, that, that's still mm. endured with, with, with audiences, I should think, ju just as it does today. On the face of it, the birth of Merlin's attitude towards women is pretty much what you'd expect, epitomised by Donabert encouraging the man his daughter doesn't want to marry by saying, she is a woman, sir, and will be one. Add to this the beating of Joan by Uta and the venom directed towards Artesia, a woman orator, shrieks Donabert, and you, you get the picture. However, Alison Finley has written that the play uses Merlin to promote radical ideas about female sexual behaviour. Sexual transgression is quite literally demonised, but the text pays lip service to patriarchal ideology only to undermine it. Joan's liaison with the devil, the greatest evil, is actually the cause of the greatest good. Not only does Joan's liaison bring forth Merlin and therefore look forward to the glorious reign of Arthur, it also leads to Joan's redemption, illustrated by the resistance she shows whilst being terrorised once again by the devil towards the end of the play. Hence from my sight, she cries, why shouldst thou now appear? I had no pride nor lustful thought about me to conjure and call thee to my ruin, when as at first thy cursed person became visible, the devil says, I am the same I was. But I am changed, insists Joan bravely. Now Merlin appears, and before enclosing his father in a rock, tells him, never shalt thou touch a woman more. Having rescued his mother, Merlin tells her, leave this soil, and I'll conduct you to a place retired, which I by art have raised, called Merlin's Bower. There shall you dwell with solitary sighs, with groans and passions your companions, to weep away this flesh you have offended with, and leave all bare unto your aerial soul. And when you die, I will erect a monument. Upon the verdant plains of Salisbury, no king shall have so high a sepulchre. 
So if you know your famous rocks, you'll know that the monument on the verdant plains of Salisbury is, of course, Stonehenge. Megan Lynn Isaac writes that many sources of Arthurian lore attribute the construction of Stonehenge to Merlin. He builds it in some versions as a tribute to Aurelius, Uther, the Britons who died defending the kingdom from the Saxons, and even to himself. But only in the birth of Merlin is the great structure designated as a tribute and tomb for his mother. Now, apparently this scene was cut from the Treehouse production. Peter Kerwin calls the moment infamous and sees it as Merlin imprisoning his own mother. I read it more as a kind of sanctuary, but maybe uh, that's being naive. I, I also read Joan's admittedly uh, lonely sounding future as, as penance and no one else can do penance for you. They can't um, throw penance on you. So I guess I thought this uh, idea of Merlin's bower was to, was to provide Joan with, a, with solitude that she actually wanted. I guess in performance that, that, could be, uh, that could be twisted whichever way you please. In one of my favourite passages from the play, Joan describes her sin, which is the old satanic sin of self-love. Such was my peevish love unto myself that I did hate all other. Such disdain was in my scornful eye that I supposed no mortal creature worthy to enjoy me. Thus with the peacock I beheld my train, but never saw the blackness of my feet. Oft have I chid the winds for breathing on me, and cursed the sun, fearing to blast my beauty. In midst of this most leprous disease, a seeming fair young man appeared unto me, in all things suiting my aspiring pride, and with him brought along a conquering power, to which my frailty yielded, from whose embraces the issue came, what more he is, I know not. Monica Karpinska writes of Joan that although she acts naturally as a female of the time, there is something a tad unnatural about her. Not only because she is chosen by the devil, in the same way the Virgin Mary is not quite a natural woman, but also because she admits a denunciation of nature during her repentance speech. Thinking herself superior to the natural world of which she is a part, Joan divorces herself from the female regenerative forces of nature, with which women are traditionally aligned, thus leaving her open to a birth of unnatural proportion. Such a separation from traditional female roles is also enacted by the sisters, Constantia and Modestia, who are determined, like Joan, to transcend their bodies. At this point, both of the sisters have decided to devote their lives into uh, religious solitude, rather like uh, how Joan ends up in Merlin's Bower. And Constantia is trying to uh, persuade her father to listen to the uh, hermit Anselm argue for them. She says to her father, Donabert, you gave us life, save not our bodies, but our souls from death. Monica Karpinska writes that the sisters have used their bodies by refusing to use them within the male public sphere in the traditional forms of marriage and reproduction. Surely one of the best parts to get to play is Artesia, the Saxon, who rips through the court of Aurelius, dropping curses and crabs. Her final scene, where she is bound and threatened with being tortured and burned alive, is reminiscent of another Joan. But whereas at the end of Henry VI, part one, Joan of Arc tries to reason with her captors and get them to spare her, Artesia only laughs, mocking their poor invention. Burn her to dust, shouts Donabert. Artesia replies, that's a phoenix death and glorious. Alive she shall be buried, circled in a wall. Thou murderess of a king, there starve to death, says Prince Uta. And Artesia says, then I'll starve death when he comes for his prey. And in the meantime, I'll live upon your curses. Tis diet good enough, away with her. 
and as Artesia is led off, she says, With joy, my best of wishes is before. Thy brother's poisoned, but I wanted more. Fascinating. I, I'm I'm really pleased to hear you uh, say that uh, about the, the vindication part in particular, because it really struck me how, uh, in contrast to those early clowns, how integrated the clown was into the plot i thought it was it was another really interesting spin on that quite well-known story of merlin that is you know his the, the whole the whole reason that he comes to vortigern's tower is because his his mystics have said you will you need to find a son that has no father that they bring him merlin and his mother is mentioned as being a, a succubus yeah but um but she's no she, she doesn't really hang around much whereas roly not only has her being encouraged on by the clown, but also, which I, I, I don't know if there's any other version that has this, but he, he has Joan and the devil reunited, which is extraordinary. It, it, it puts a whole different emphasis on that. It makes you think about that quite differently and, and not certainly not in just a comic context. It was, that's quite a... He rescues, um, Merlin rescues Joan from, from his uh, mm. demonic father at one point, doesn't he? Um... He does, yeah. I was in, in terms of you, you talk about finding a father. I love the the, the the sort of subtitle to this play is "The Child Hath Found His Father," um, mm. and I love that that's a refrain in this play. Uh, it, it works better than you know when movies quote their own titles, like you <laughs> know um, the, the word. One of the worst examples is um, the 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 James Bond movie "A View to a Kill," uh, where one it's um, a character named Mayday says, what of you? And then Christopher Watkins is villain. Zoran says, to a kill. You know, so they, they got the title <laughs> in there. And I think, you know, family guy kind of referenced it, don't they, where he's like, Superman for the quest for peace. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like that refrain. I think it, I think it works quite well in, um, in, uh, in Rody's play. What, what I always found fascinating was that Merlin is more or less born with a, a fully grown beard isn't he um yeah which is something i didn't achieve until you know at least age eight um and the well i still haven't to... managed it <laughs> <laughs> but he's just a fascinating fascinating character i wonder you know would he have been played by a child actor with a fake wig uh, a fake beard or, or something uh, what a what a role i mean it's a great twist isn't it because you, you are expecting like I, I mean, are you even expecting Merlin to be a character? The place called the Birth of Merlin. Maybe he's just going to be a lump in a in under a blanket. A lump we'll spread up in darkness. We'll yeah, you, I mean, a lump spread up in darkness. You'd be disappointed yeah. if he didn't have a beard. You think of Merlin. You, 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 I, I tend to think of this like Gandalf-like figure. So you know, ha having this um, having this kid with a beard is, is great. You know, if he had been like a a, a sort of um, acne scar teenager or something i think i would have been disappointed and that brings us to the end of today's episode on the birth of merlin by william rowley a uh, huge thank you to my guest darren freebury jones if you haven't listened to it already uh check out our episode we did together on the spanish tragedy and on audio platforms look out for an extended interview with darren uh tomorrow um we talk about his book thomas kidd and uh, his other shakespearean scholarship thank you very much for watching and until next time happy reading Thank you.